And come and join us back in the auditorium. I'm trusting the speaker's on out there. I'm trusting you can hear it. I don't need Ron to up the volume in the foyer. Wow, it's quiet in here. You guys aren't in trouble. You just need to come back, that's all. Want to welcome up our guest speaker this morning, Aaron Julin. Is, uh, come on up and join me, Aaron. Aaron is uh, a leader and on the uh, uh, preaching, teaching team at Coast Hills Community Church, which is a sister or brother church, whatever you call them, uh, with ours in Cloverdale. Um, and uh, Pastor Kevin is the, is the pastor there. And um, yeah, it's the church that Sylvia and Savannah and Joel and I came from when we came to Jericho three years ago. Uh, we, we left Coast Hills and uh, came here. And uh, yeah, I just, so just want to thank you for coming and bless you. And this attentive audience is all yours. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I was thinking as I was preparing for today that it is such a unique privilege to be able to do what, you know, Paul always does in the New Testament and you bring greetings from a foreign church and say hello and we bless you and we're glad you're here. Uh, I don't get to do this very often where I get to go and visit other congregations and hide in the back and see what's happening and see who's around. So thank you so much for having me here. Um, as Wally said, uh, my name is Erin Julin. I am a member at Coast Hills Community Church. My husband and I and our family have been there for about seven years now. Uh, I am on the teaching team there and uh, that's how I ended up here. Kevin and our, my Kevin and your Brad know each other. Wally and Sylvia uh, were part of our staff and of course Tyler Schachter helped us buy our house and helped my in-laws buy their houses and my other in-laws buy their houses. <laughs> so so there's lots of connections. And I just made a new one. I didn't know. Um, Alan Herda Thiessen have worked with my father-in-law, Brad. Brad uh, is a pastor as well. And they worked together at Richmond Bethel um, back in the day. And Brad and Carol were hoping to be here this morning. But my father-in-law, Brad, is starting at a brand new church at Relate Church in Vancouver this morning. So he's preaching there. And I got word my sister is preaching in Saskatchewan this morning. And my dad is preaching in Ontario. So... <laughs> big family party today going on all over the place. A um, couple things to know about us. My family and I, my husband and I have been married for 12 years and we have three children now. My daughters, their names are Elise and Aliana and they're nine. Uh, yes, they are twins and yes, the two years of their life was completely crazy. Um, and I have a son who is five and he is in school now full time and so we are in that transition. Um, Corey would have loved to have been here this morning, but one of our children has recently, thank you, thanks, thankfully to probably um, a God appointment, been diagnosed with autism. Uh, and Wally and Sylvia have actually been instrumental in that journey with us. Uh, we just randomly met at a birthday party last June, and we're telling them a bit of our story, and they looked at us and said, you need to get that child assessed. And that was uh, instrumental in us figure, learning how to best care for them. So as you can understand, routine is critical to the best care of our child, and so Corey is with them. And to add on top of that, my daughters decided to try having a sleepover last night with a friend. And uh, they both ended up home by 10 o'clock in tears and not feeling good because they hadn't slept. So 
Corey's managing all of those pieces on the home front this morning. Um, I actually live really close. I'm just up on the hill right here in Clayton on the corner of 68th and 93rd. So it was wonderful just to be able to walk here this morning, which is also part of the reason I'm still in layers because I am still cold. And as I go in my excitement, I'm sure I will take a couple off. But um, I am so excited about this series that you are doing through the hidden, called Hidden Figures through the women in Jesus' genealogy and uh, some of the women in his life. Um, I was telling one of our elders team last week about this and they're like, okay, we have to copy that. We got to take that and do that sometime. So I think we're going to borrow your idea and be doing this in our home church as well, hopefully in the near future. Uh, last week, uh, Rebecca spoke with us from the book of Ruth about Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi who we're going to be looking at today. And Ruth, um, as we heard from Rebecca, and as we got to watch, in the midst of horrific circumstances, uh, acted in bold, sacrificial, creative, unwavering love, hesed love, towards Naomi. So today, we're going to actually be looking at the same book, at Ruth, but turning our perspective to the other side of the story, at Naomi's story. And because there's just so much goodness here, I'm literally going to dive right in. Uh, and we're going to start at the intro in chapter 1, verse 1. So you're welcome to open your Bibles if you have them, or pull out your app, or I'll be working in a fairly storied fashion, so you can just follow along with me this morning. In the intro to the book of Ruth, the author actually throws at us a whole bunch of context that is really important for us to grasp if we're going to get Naomi's story. So let's start reading right at verse 1, and we'll pound through this. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Milan and Kilon, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. So big, three big contextual pieces for us to pick up on right away. First, the Israelites are in the promised land. Second, they are farmers, they're agrarian, and that means that their livelihood is tied to the land. And third, they are a very patriarchal society, okay? We're told that the story takes place in the time of the judges. Israel is no longer wandering in the desert, and in a little bit we're gonna see from the genealogy at the very end of the book that they have not been in the, in the promised land very long. They're only about a generation in. Okay, this is fairly new territory for them. And historically, this promised land has been described as the land flowing with milk and honey. But there's a severe famine in this land. This land that is supposed to be full of bounty and flowing with milk and honey. So for an agrarian farming community, this is bad news. Not just because people are going to literally starve, but also because at the time, the understanding of God's pleasure or displeasure with the people was directly tied to what they saw happening with the weather and with their land. 
So if there's a famine in the land, the natural conclusion was that God was not happy. To drive the irony of this point home, the author then also tells us that the people in this story are from the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, its name literally means the house of bread, right? So whoever these people are, they're from a land that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey and the town that is named after bread. And then we learn that they're a patriarchal society. A patriarchal society where men have all the rights and women are literally property. Women at the time would have been married off shortly after they began their menstruation to start carrying out their one true purpose in life, which was to produce male heirs to carry on the male family line. So the author tells us that this man, Elimelech, married Naomi. And Naomi has given birth to not one son, but two sons, which means that Naomi is a woman of good repute who has done her job and her duty and carried on Elimelech's family line. Now, not only has Naomi carried on the family line by giving birth to these two boys, but these two sons are from the clan of the Ephrathites, from the land of Judah, the family line that Jacob blessed with greatness and from which Jacob prophesied that the Messiah was going to come. So this family is the right kind of family with multiple sons from a good family line living in the house of bread in the land that's flowing with milk and honey. But just as fast as we learn about this family who has everything technically going for them, we find out that something has actually gone horribly wrong. There's a famine in the land and a famine so severe that Elimelech makes the decision to move his family to a foreign land, the land of, the, of Moab, the home of the Moabites, whom, as Rebecca told us last week, are, have been in a very long family feud with the Israelites. They are an unclean people, detestable, and they practice human child sacrifice to their foreign god. And everything in this family's life begins to crash and burn. The next three verses tell us that shortly after arriving in Moab, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow with two sons in a foreign land surrounded by people that for all intensive purposes, they have been raised to hate. Then Naomi's two sons decide to do something. They decide to marry Moabite women. Now, I don't know about you, but I definitely dated some boys in high school that my parents did not like. Okay. This is boys that my parents did not like on a whole different level. These boys chose to marry women that the Israelites hated from a totally different faith tradition, right? They worshiped idols 
and they murdered people to try and keep those fake gods happy. So no matter what way Naomi looked at this, this was horrible, terrible. They're in a foreign land, and now they've married into these foreign people's families. And the disaster just keeps going. After 10 years, both of Naomi's sons die, leaving Naomi with two daughter-in-laws. So three widowed women alone, barren, these two daughter-in-laws have been married for 10 years and have not been able to have children, with no rights, no land, and no way to provide for themselves. So Naomi, who came from the right family, in the right town, in the right country, from the chosen people of the one true living God, who fulfilled her purpose in life of bearing sons, is now in this God-forsaken land, widowed, childless, with two foreign, barren, unclean women, as her only relatives, helpless, forsaken, and basically, for all intensive purposes, left for dead. Talk about going from mountaintop to the depths of the darkest, driest desert. Right? The story continues in verse 6, saying that sometime after all the men had died, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them crops again. The NIV translation says, the Lord came to the aid of his people by providing food for them. And Naomi, in her grief and most likely shame, decides enough is enough, it's time to try and go home. Naomi and her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, start the long journey back to Bethlehem in Judah. Along the way, Naomi decides that um, it's probably not a good idea for Ruth and Orpah to go with her. They're already extremely vulnerable as women who are widowed and who've been unable to have children. And add to the fact that they're foreigners from Moab, and there's a potential disaster waiting for them. Naomi urges Ruth and Orpah to return to the home of their mothers, which is a really interesting statement for the author to make, considering that the home would not be their mothers, it would be their fathers in their society. And the women all weep and hug one another. Orpah does the wise thing and goes back to her home, but Ruth vows to never be separated from Naomi, calling down the punishment of God upon herself if she's separated from Naomi, even after their deaths, when they're buried. When they finally arrive back in Bethlehem, exhausted, dirty, and dressed in their widow garb, childless, grandchildless, husbandless, the town is curious and excited and surprised, saying, is this really Naomi? 
For the first time, the narrator and the author give us a glimpse into the depths of Naomi's despair. If you read in verse 20 of chapter 1, Naomi responds, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has made my life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why, tell Ni- why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent tragedy upon me? Naomi has hit rock bottom and she's angry. In the coming days, right, the practical realities of returning to a home and a land that have been vacant for over 10 years probably take over. Without a man to provide for them, Naomi and Ruth are left at the mercy of their community to ensure that they don't starve, literally. As Rebecca talked about last week, there comes a day when Ruth decides to ask for Naomi's blessing to do the one thing that she can do to maybe provide for them some food. She wants to go look for leftover grain in the fields where the harvesters are bringing in the barley crops. And Naomi lets her go. With reasonably low expectations and fear for Ruth's safety, as she's alone amongst the harvesters. I can only imagine as the sun was setting that day that Ruth, Naomi would have probably started uh, checking out the window and looking down the road, wondering when Ruth might come around the corner and come home. Wondering if Ruth would have enough grain for them to even have some bread that night for their meal. And if Ruth would be in one piece Finally, when Ruth does come into view, the confusion and the curiosity as she notices that her daughter-in-law seems to be carrying a heavy load, wondering where did all that come from? There's no way she could have gleaned that much today. No farmer would ever leave that much grain unharvested. And as Ruth gets closer and Naomi pulls her in around the small fire she probably has prepared in case there's something to cook, she starts looking at her and looking at her face. Okay, there's no blood and there's no sign of bruising. Okay, so next, check her neck and check her arms. Nobody's touched her. And there's probably confusion and a little bit of awe as Naomi's looking at this situation. And she starts, the questions start coming, right? In chapter 2, verse 19, we see this. Where did you gather grain today? Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she worked. She said, "Uh, well, the man I work today, his name's Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing loving kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. This man, he's one of our closest relatives. He's he's one of our family redeemers. Then Ruth said, what's more, 
Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good, good, Naomi exclaims. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in another's field, but you're going to be safe there. And in the midst of the grief and the anger and the despair and the vulnerability, all of a sudden these two women have bread. And not just enough for tonight, but an abundance of bread. I grew up in uh, southern Ontario. And uh, for most of that time, uh, I lived in the home that my parents still live in, outside of the small town called Blenheim. And do you know Blenheim? <laughs> do you know? Oh, you know Blenheim. Oh, hilarious. It's this little town. Um, and where our house is, there's a row of houses, and in front of it, there's a row of fields. Now, these aren't fields like Saskatchewan. I've lived in Saskatchewan, too. And when you live in Saskatchewan, the fields go forever, and then you see a tiny house way down there, and you know where your neighbor is. Where my, parents, where my parents' home is, there's a row of houses and a row of fields, and you can see your row of neighbors on the other side. For many years, uh, in the fields right in front of my parents' home, the farmers put in wheat. And it's one of my mother's favorite things to watch the wheat change from green to yellow to that golden honey color that signals it's ready for harvest. Now, do any of you know what happens when wheat or grain is ready for harvest? Do you know what goes on? All of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, uh, the combines show up. And then all of the large farm wagons show up. And the farmers start harvesting. And there's absolutely no stopping. And they work very long days. And there's chaff flying everywhere in the air. And they take few breaks. And they get that grain off as fast and as hard as they can. My parents uh, really wanted my kids to see this at some point, and it just so happened we had to be in Ontario for a family wedding last year, right around this time. And literally, you're surrounded by wheat, you know, huge, ready to harvest, and within 48 hours, it's gone. It's gone. And part of the hurriedness of it comes because it's got to get off before the next rain comes. So when I read at the end of chapter 2 of this story that Ruth worked alongside Boaz's women until the end of the barley harvest and through the wheat harvest in early summer, I'm struck by the reality that this is actually a very short period of time. Even without the use of modern machinery, okay, the reality and the necessity of getting grain off when it is ripe, before the next rain comes and ruins the whole crop, is absolutely critical to farmers. So when I read at the beginning of the next chapter, in chapter 3, I'm a little bit in awe of Naomi. Because in chapter 3, we're coming to the end of the harvest. If, if I had to guess from my observation of seeing crops come off a whole a number of times, I can't imagine that even without modern machinery, this is more than a couple of weeks, maybe a month at tops, right? Because if that rain comes, everything is ruined. They're not risking that. They are going hard. And Naomi, with this very short period of time since, since bread has maybe started to show up in their home, 
goes to her daughter-in-law in the midst of the grief that they're both sharing, in the midst of the vulnerability that still is there, in the midst of the anger and probably the depression, because that's what happens when you're grieving. And she says to her daughter-in-law that she should go and propose marriage to Boaz. All right, this is ridiculous, right? This is completely unheard of. We are in a patriarchal society, right? Women are property, literally. That is what they are. Women don't go around proposing marriage to a man of extreme standing in the community. They just don't do that. You wouldn't do that. That that would be completely unheard of. But what's even more shocking to me in the midst of this is the reason why we're told that Naomi wants Ruth to go and do this. In the midst of her own loss, Naomi wants Ruth to go and propose marriage to Boaz so that she will have a home and be provided for. She's hoping for the best for Ruth. It makes me chuckle, this unlikely duo, right? From totally different worlds, totally different ages. Yet both of these women are stubborn with a dogmatic focus to ensure that the other one is cared for, each in their own way, in the way that they can. As we've already seen on the road back when when they were coming back from Bethlehem, Naomi tried to make the best decision for Ruth. Naomi tried to encourage her to go home. And why? Because she was concerned about her safety and her future. But Ruth would have none of it. Not only would Ruth have none of it, she goes out to glean food and makes a request of the landowner, Boaz, at that time that went way beyond her rights as a woman and as a gleaner according to the gleaning laws of the time. But then Boaz, called into action by these two unlikely women, responds to Ruth's request in the field by meeting that request and one-upping it. Boaz decides to do the same thing and goes way above and beyond the requests that Ruth made of them. And now, in chapter 3 and 4, we're about to see this play out all over again. I'm going to draw you some pictures to keep this all straight, okay? Naomi tells Ruth to go and propose to Boaz, okay? I'm going to use my long arms here for you. She wants Ruth to go to propose marriage to Boaz. Why? So that Ruth would be provided for and have a home. Ruth goes along with this plan until she's out of earshot of Naomi, okay? And she adds her own piece to the proposal in a strategic effort of her own to make sure that in the midst of this that Naomi is cared for. Ruth proposes to Boaz calling on Boaz to become her family redeemer. Why? To carry on the family name and to act as provider for the family, for, to the provider for the widow who is Naomi. 
Ruth is asking for something that goes way above and beyond the letter of the law. For one, the family redeemer law that she's asking Boaz to act in pertains to Naomi as the family female head of the household. But Naomi is beyond the age of having children. So this is a non-starter. Naomi actually already referred to this when they were on the way back from Bethlehem and she said to Orpah and Ruth, like women, like what are we gonna do? If I go back to Bethlehem and even if I have a husband tonight, am I gonna be able to bear children? No. And even if I did have a son, would you honestly wait until he is grown up and marry him and then produce an heir, a family redeemer to, ha- to carry on the family line? No. This is Naomi's. This law pertains to Naomi, not to Ruth. And second, even if someone was willing to, to, to go beyond the letter of the law and take Ruth to be that woman who would produce an heir, Naomi had been, I'm sorry, Ruth had been married for 10 years and she had been able to, unable to have children. So as far as anybody knows, Ruth is completely barren. But it doesn't stop there. Ruth proposes to Boaz and about the, the family redeemer. And shock of all shocks, rather than being taken aback, Boaz is actually honored that Ruth would ask him and informs him, her, informs Ruth that there's actually a family redeemer closer to her than he is, that he'll need to clear things for, with first and vows to marry her if the other family redeemer does not want to. What? Like, this is, like, we don't, we, we, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta put our hats on and imagine ourselves back in this society. This does not happen. Women do not get this type of movement. This is not how people go above and beyond the letter of the law normally. Completely unheard of. Radical. Completely radical. But the crazy doesn't stop there, Okay? In response to the sacrificial loving example of these two women, Boaz then goes above and beyond expectations again. He uses his own strategic ability that he's seen in these two women and sets into motion a plan that would have the potential to provide an heir for Ruth and Naomi's family line while at the same time providing Naomi with the much-needed cash and livelihood now. Boaz approaches the closer family redeemer at the city gate where legal matters are sorted with a proposal for him to buy Naomi's land. Okay, so I'll draw you a picture of land. This is what it looks like in Saskatchewan. It kind of parceled out like that. So he calls into, ref- into action the land redeemer law found in Leviticus 25, giving Naomi status as the one who's selling the land. Okay, unheard of again in a patriarchal society. This land is still a limelex. Naomi doesn't have any rights. But here at the wall, Boaz is all of a sudden saying, Naomi is selling her land. He goes beyond that, okay, and attaches Ruth as a condition of sale to the land, calling into action the family redeemer law. So if this closest relative were to purchase this land, 
he'd have to pay Naomi the cash now, then work with Ruth. Uh, let's call this the closest family redeemer. See ya. To provide an heir for Naomi and Elimelech's family. Work the land, putting all his resources into it, until the child is old enough to care for it themselves. And then give the land and everything that he's worked for back to the child so that the child can provide for Naomi. Well, no wonder the closest family redeemer responded in the way that he did. Are you crazy? This would put his entire estate in jeopardy. I can only imagine that Naomi was shocked when she heard what Ruth added to her proposal to Boaz. And I can only imagine how much more dumbfounded, speechless, Naomi and Ruth must have been when Boaz, perhaps a little sheepishly, shows up at their house after the incident at the city gate with cash to buy Naomi's land and the legal right to marry Ruth. How did this happen? How did they go from being completely vulnerable and angry and grief-stricken and hopeless to being women this practically provided for, right? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't change the emotion of the grief that they're going to work through. It doesn't change their loss, But all of a sudden, in the midst of this, all the practical realities have been taken care of. And how did this get here? How did we get here? Well, the author doesn't disappoint. And in the last few verses of the book, he ties it all up nicely for us. So after the celebrating is over, Boaz and Ruth are married. They have sex. And verse 11 tells us, the Lord enabled Ruth to conceive. This is absolutely huge. It is only the second time in the entire book that the author states clearly what the action of the Lord has been and is. The first time was in chapter 1 when the narrator informs us that the Lord was providing bread back in Bethlehem. And if this statement in chapter 1 initiates the major theme of the book of Ruth, then the Lord enabling Ruth to conceive is the corresponding bookend that causes the reader to sit up and take notice. This is our God. No matter what else is going on, no matter how it feels, this is the action of our God. Our God works to provide for those in need. But the richness of the statement, the Lord enabled her to conceive, does not stop there. Check out all the names of lineage used by the people witnessing the legal exchange at the wall between Boaz and the closer family redeemer. 
Then again, by the town people that come before and after the conception of birth. In these words of blessing, and in identifying all these women and men of lineage, the narrator is calling the audience, us, to remember that this action of providing has been the action that God has taken throughout the entire history of this family line. Okay, so if you read, if we're looking at chapter 4, verse 11, this is... um, Boaz has just finished at the wall, and the elders and the people are are giving their blessing to the work that's being done. And they say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all nations of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of your ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. Okay, so think back. Rachel and Leah are the wives of Jacob. Rachel was loved by Jacob and Leah was not And scripture tells us very pointedly that when God saw that Leah was unloved, what did God do? God enabled her to conceive. God opened her womb. And she became the mother of ten of the heads of the tribes of Israel. God provided for this family provided for this nation that he had promised. And Rachel, the loved one, became the mother of two. But then they go on and they bless them in the line of their ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. Now, I think you guys have already looked through the story of Tamar, right? So Judah, the son of Jacob, had three sons. The oldest one marries Tamar and dies without a child. So what do they enact? The family redeemer law. The next son marries Tamar to try and have a child with her to produce an heir. That son refuses to get her pregnant. So Tamar is sent home to wait until the third son is old enough to marry her. But Judah refuses to marry, to allow him to marry her because he's scared. So Tamar, in all her strategic ability at that time, decides to to trick Judah into sleeping with her and does her strategic work to what? Produce an heir for the family. And she gives birth to twins and Perez is the oldest. And Perez is what? Perez is the family redeemer for this family. So they are blessing Boaz and Ruth with the ability to have a family redeemer come into their home to provide for the widows in this home. And that's why it's so significant when we look at the genealogy at the very end that Perez is the beginning of the genealogy because Perez is again the sign that the Lord provided for his people. And it doesn't stop there. This author's crazy. He just keeps, or she's crazy, and she just keeps stacking it up for us. She says, Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadeb. Okay, Amenadeb is the father-in-law of the high priest Aaron, the spokesman for Moses. When what? God provided rescue for his people out of Israel. So 